This is the Ruminant Podcast. I'm Jordan Marr. The Ruminant Podcast and blog wonders what good farming looks like and aims to help farmers and gardeners share insights with each other. At theruminant.ca, you'll find show notes for each episode of the podcast, as well as the odd essay, book review, and photo-based blog post. You can email me, editor at theruminant.ca. I'm at ruminantblog on Twitter, or search The Ruminant on Facebook. Okay, on with the show. Hey everybody, it's Jordan. So last week we had an episode that once again focused on the practical aspects of farming and gardening, featuring a few short segments, which means that this week we are back to a longer form conversation uh, and we broaden out our viewpoint to, uh, to focus on kind of broader topics in food and agriculture. And I'm really excited to tell you that this week uh, features a conversation with Stephen Lay, the author of 100 Million Years of Food. Stephen is an anthropologist, and in his book, he argues that we are focusing way too much on nutrition and nutrition science uh, and not enough on our ancestry and evolution when it comes to figuring out the link between our diets and our health. It is a provocative book, to say the least, folks. Um, It's just kind of full of, of paradoxes. For example, Stephen manages to make the argument that when a hardcore vegetarian and a hardcore paleo diet advocate start bickering over, you know, whose diet is better for our health, well, he argues that they're both right. He also spends some time arguing that that exercise is not unequivocally good for us. And that guess what? We actually aren't consuming all that many more calories now than than our than our ancestors did. And here's something that will be of interest to all the veggie growers out there. Stephen, well, he kind of thinks that plants kind of suck, or at least they're not nearly as awesome for our diets as uh, a lot of people like to believe. So we're going to get to that in uh, in just a minute. I also want to say that I heard from uh, Robert, uh, the owner of Mid-Atlantic Farm Sensors, who was featured on the show last week, and he said he's already had some some really interesting submissions regarding uh, his offer to 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 uh, to offer a really steep discount to one listener of one of his uh, farm sensor setups. Uh, so if you're wondering what that's about, you can check out last week's episode, and we'll announce the winner, um, I guess, on an upcoming episode. I'm not sure exactly when. Anyway, it's time to get to my conversation with Stephen Lay. Two notes that I want to make about the conversation. Uh, Steven was in Vietnam on a cell phone when I interviewed him. So uh, his feed isn't wonderful. It's it's all right. Um, and it's, it's I guess, dang good for, for the fact that he was in Vietnam on a cell phone. But I apologize. It's not up to the usual audio standard. Second, if you're a Canadian listener and you would like to compete for a free copy of 100 Million Years of Food, um, here's what you can do. Go and share the Facebook post at the Ruminants Facebook page. Go and find that page and then find the the post for this episode and share it on your own timeline. Or go and find the tweet associated with this episode, which uh, you can find if you search for at Ruminant blog on Twitter and retweet it. Or send me an email and tell me what you think of the show. It doesn't have to be positive feedback. I would just love to know what you think. And I will compile a list of all the people who participated in the contest. And I will have the Canadian publisher of 100 Million Years of Food, which is the publisher that that helped line up the interview. I will have them send uh, a free copy of the book to, to one listener. 
And to my American listeners, I'm really sorry. I was dealing exclusively with the Canadian publisher for this book. And so uh, it, they're only going to be able to send the book somewhere in Canada. And if that makes you steamed, I want you to know that that every Sunday morning when I go to dig.com and like all of the best of last night's SNL clips have been shared there, uh, I can't watch them because what does it say? The uploader has not made them available in my country. So it goes both ways, I guess, is what I'm saying. And uh, yeah, I'll try and have something uh, that includes you, some kind of contest uh, very soon. Anyway, here's my conversation with Stephen Lay. I hope you enjoy it. And uh, I'll talk to you briefly at the end. Stephen Lay, thanks a lot for joining me on the Ruminant Podcast. Uh, Thank you for having me. Stephen, you've written a book called 100 Million Years of Food, What Our Ancestors Ate and Why It Matters Today. And... It's all about the relationship, essentially, between uh, our diets and our health. And in terms of that relationship, you, you argue that we are, are too focused on reducing food to its nutrient components and not focused enough on the role of genetics and evolution in determining that relationship. And I guess, first of all, I'm wondering if I have that about right. Um, and also, if you could explain uh, what, what inspired you to write this book. Okay. Um, with regards to the first question about um, the, the over-focus on nutrients. There is an understandable tendency to think about food as a kind of medicine. And we have this saying of, uh, you are what you eat. And so I think there's, there's a lot of uh, <clears throat> emphasis these days on trying to fine-tune our foods to, to optimize our health. And that, that makes sense. But... Um, it, it can also go to an extreme, and um, people get overly anxious about what they're eating. They try to get a lot of uh, nutritional advice. They're tuned into what's the latest news on, on nutrition, and then they go to extremes, unfortunately, trying to eliminate or focus on different kinds of nutrients or superfoods in order to avoid chronic diseases. And so I think this has been an, an unfortunate trend. Uh, we can talk a lot about more, that, more about that if you want. And um, the second question about why I decided to write this book, there were two main reasons. Um, the first reason was that my mother passed away from breast cancer uh, in 2010. And she was 66 at that time. And my mother's mother, my grandmother, uh, passed away at the age of 92. And so there's a, almost a 30-year gap between my mother passing away and my grandmother uh, the, the age that my grandmother passed away. And so I wanted to understand what were the factors that were behind this huge difference. And um, it was also, um, I need to get this information so that I could pass on some sort of message to my uh, relatives and to my friends and also to um, help myself avoid uh, uh, cancer in the future. So that, and that was one reason. Then there was another reason, which was that my best friend, um, went on a paleo diet. And since I just finished studying um, biological anthropology, the study of human evolution at UCLA, uh, I decided to do more research into this to find out about the long-term consequences of eating a lot of meat. Well, Stephen, that, that personal motivation that you describe for um, for wanting to pursue this topic, it really comes through in the book. I just want to say, you know, it's a really interesting book in the sense that uh, you're you're fairly rigorous in your coverage of the science, but it, it also reads a little bit like a personal journey or or even a, a sort of a memoir of sorts. And um, yeah, I think you you achieve a, a really nice balance there. 
but um, back back to the to the science. Um, in your book, you you write that you know up to a point, and you were you were writing about kind of the earliest early twentieth century. Um, science made some uh, very important discoveries about certain nutritional deficiencies and how those deficiencies uh, contribute to conditions uh, such as rickets or or beriberi. Um, but but you know since then uh, science has made in your words uh, a disappointingly scant progress in understanding the relationship between diet and health you argue in your book that you 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 need to account for 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 the variability of of ancestral diets it's not like all of us have evolved essentially in the same way is that right people who evolved in different parts of the world when their diets were sufficiently different then they they developed uh, evolved genetic differences in processes in those foods and uh for example um the uh, Maasai in East Africa who um, have traditionally eaten a diet consisting of milk, um, blood, and cattle meat, uh, especially for the warriors in this group. Um, there was a lot of cholesterol, a really high level of cholesterol in this kind of diet. And it seems like they have evolved a specific adaptation to an extremely high level of cholesterol in their diet. Um, another example is the Inuit in uh, northern Canada and uh, Alaska. They um, had a diet that was historically very low in sugars and in uh, calcium. And so when Inuits are exposed to high levels of sugar and high levels of calcium, um, they develop health problems, um, uh, dangerously levels, high levels of calcium in their blood. So it, um, the specific ancestry of, of, of uh, people uh, matters and um, uh, particularly for people who can trace their, their ancestry to a specific region in the world. Uh, that being said, um, a lot of Americans don't know where their ancestors come from. They have this sort of uh, mixed genetic background, and so the differences uh, start to matter less in, in those cases. But for those people who know uh, where they come from, then they can fine-tune their diets according to the, uh, what their ancestors ate. Right, right. Okay, and so that, that actually led me to wonder, uh, Stephen, you know, an interest. I really, I really love the way you structured your book. Um, you know, the, the the most of the chapters kind of take us sequentially through evolution, going back to before we were humans, and 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 the different foods that we evolved or that we that we tended to eat, and then as we evolved, our our diets changed. You know, you you go all the way back and to a time when our our distant, distant, distant ancestor species were, were, were eating insects and then kind of take us all the way through to the, to the present day. But it, it had me wondering what is, what is, you know, how long does evolution take for a given uh, change uh, in this case, like a, a change in our physiology that would, would uh, allow us to, to um, properly digest a new food? Yeah, that's a great question. So the old view on this question was that it would take, um, on the order of something like 50,000, 100,000 uh, years to develop a genetic adaptation to something like a new, a new kind of food item. But um, just in the last uh, 10 or 20 years, this, changes, this view has changed dramatically. And now it's realized that in the last 10,000 years, uh, which is a pretty short amount of time in, in uh, evolutionary uh, perspective, there's been a lot of genetic changes in humans um, due to 
uh, rapid introductions of new foods. And so the, the most famous example is with dairy. Um, dairy was introduced around uh, 9,000 years ago in uh, northern Europe and also in um, uh, East Africa and northern India. And so in those places, people developed the ability to, to digest um, lactose, the sugar, and milk. And so that was just on the order of about 9,000 uh, years, uh, which is a really pretty short amount of time. That's only about uh, 300 uh, generations. So um, adaptations can occur, occur quite rapidly. So, Stephen, 300 generations, or say 10,000 years, uh, even 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 if recent science is showing that adaptations can happen that quickly, it still it still poses a problem for modern humans who happen to be very very obsessed with trying to optimize their diet for for maximum health. Um, just in the sense that that that's still way 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 too slow for an adaptation to take place. Um, given how quickly uh, our lifestyles have changed in comparison, say in the last 100 years or 200 years, um, it, it just seems like that's a huge barrier to actually being able to, to you know, make our lifestyles and our diets work together for, for, for optimal health. Uh, yes, that's right. So um, there's this term in evolutionary science, they call it a disequilibrium. And that means when there's a rapid change, uh, in the environment of an organism. And usually, in that case, um, the animal's health uh, suffers. Uh, so, just as you say, in the last couple of hundred years, there have been huge changes in, in food and lifestyle, and uh, um, this has been blamed for a lot of these uh, uh, new uh, diseases of civilization, as they call them. So, yes, this is a, this is a concern. Stephen, you a really interesting point that you make in your book that that isn't, I think, otherwise very obvious um, is is that we we need to understand that when we talk about our health and how our diet contributes to it, that that often there is a trade off uh, between our short term health and our long term health, and that certain diets will maximize uh, short term health and and whereas other things we could be eating are better for our longevity um, and so I thought we could talk about that using the um, meat using the consumption of meat as an example C Could you take me through that sure um, there has been a lot of uh, research in the past past couple of decades on uh, caloric restriction. And so the idea here was that <clears throat> people have noted uh, uh, from the uh, 1930s that eating less calories seemed to prolong the lifespan of mice, uh, lab mice. And when they extended these kind of experiments to fruit flies and um, uh, other organisms, they, they found that, uh, yeah, they're there was this general tendency for animals to live longer when they ate less. And so this sparked a lot of interest in humans. And we want people scientists start to wonder if this if if producing calories would also extend lifespan in humans. And um, after decades of research, it now turns out that it's what really extends lifespan of organisms is not so much reducing calories, but reducing protein, protein intake. And so across um a lot of these animals that have been studied in labs, 
um, decreasing the amount of protein tends to increase the lifespan of the organism. And uh, for, for biologists, this makes sense because in, in biology, in, in terms of biology, there's basically two strategies for an organism. Um, the organism can either have a very successful but short life or a, um, a life that's less successful but longer. By living longer, the organism would have a, a second chance to reproduce. So uh, uh, waiting for, for another day to, to reproduce. So there's these two basic kind of uh, strategies. And it looks like uh, eating a lot of calories, and in particular eating a lot of protein, can make an animal strong and able to reproduce in the short term. But from a biological point of view, that's, that's fine. That's like um, uh, some clothing that's, that's very uh, cheap but would uh, make the person attractive in the short term. In the long term, it turns out that, uh, again, eating a lot of protein probably makes an organism uh, die sooner. And so when you look at it from the perspective of an athlete, an athlete needs to uh, perform optimally uh, in, the, in the early years. But uh, the consequence of that is that the, the athlete has problems in later years. And this, if you think of a sumo wrestler, they eat huge amounts of protein and a lot of food in general, and they're extremely strong and formidable uh, on a wrestling mat. But then once they retire, then they start to have problems with diabetes and gout uh, from, all this, uh, from the calories and uh, all the uh, meat that they've been eating uh, over their uh, career. So that's the kind of trade-off that we're looking at. Well, I just I find that <laughs> I find that so fascinating, Stephen, because you know, as I, I, look, I'm like many other people, I think and have thought a lot about um, my diet and and my health. And what's so funny is that that you know I've never thought about it in those terms. Because, I guess, frankly, because I didn't really know about it until I read your book. But what's what's so interesting is that that I think many of us, including myself, that we want both things, right? I want to have chiseled abs and a great body because I want to be attractive to people around me. Um, and I just want to feel like super charged and super healthy. But I also, I, when I, in terms of what I'm eating, I'm also thinking about wanting to live a long time, but they just, you know, you, you make a pretty strong argument that they're not necessarily very compatible. That's right. You can, okay. So you can take that this view to an extreme. And some people are going to opt for the really short-term, and some people would opt for the extreme long-term. And I think most of us will choose something in between. We'll want to, we'll have to, we'll want to, both. we want the health and we want the, the long life. And so um, there's going to be a compromise between that. So a person who's going to choose that kind of compromise between long health and short-term health, uh, they're not going to live as long as somebody who focuses on reducing all of their protein. But that's okay. I mean, most people are fine living up until they're 70 or 80. They may not make it to 100, but I think that for most people, that's fine. When you look at the, um, the people who have lived the longest in the world, in these, um, what Dan Buehner calls the blue zones, in these cases, these people had really, really tough lives in their early years. They went through World War II. They went through uh, near starvation and a lot of hardship, and they had to walk around all day under the sun, and uh, life was not pretty, not pleasant. For these people. But as a consequence of going through that extreme uh, caloric and protein deprivation, uh, later on in life, they um, had access to a lot of a better medical care, um, and war ended, 
and um, they had better food, in particular more meat. And so actually there's this strange effect of meat where um, if people eat meat in their early years, they can increase the risk of uh, dying earlier from cancer. But um, if older people um, uh, eat less meat, then they're actually at a higher likelihood, a higher risk of dying. So um, there's new research to suggest that meat has this double-edged effect um, where uh, it, it matters in which life stage you're, you're looking at. So people who are older um, actually need to eat more meat uh, because they can become more frail. And so, uh, yeah, there's this, there's this paradoxical effect of meat. And it, it kind of makes sense uh, when you look at it from the point of view of evolution and uh, uh, the, the life uh, the life course of an individual. So I think it's something that we need to uh, keep in mind. Well, yeah, and then there's there's a there's a, a similar paradox in the sense that you can, I mean, if you if you're right about what you're arguing about, you know, you can have you can have a guy on a paleo diet arguing with a guy on a mostly plant and grain, you know, plant based diet, arguing that their diet is better for optimum health, and it turns out in a, in one sense they're they're both correct. That's right. Yeah, we have to be careful about how we're. Uh, how we define health. Uh, that's right. <clears throat> okay, so m- moving on, Stephen, I also, another another part of your book that um, I found quite interesting was, you know, there's a very, very dominant belief um, that it's, it's our, our, it's, 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 that, that one of the, the, the greatest uh, contributors to, um, to, to obesity and other, and other, um, problems, uh, modern, modern problems of diet, particularly in Western countries, uh, is that we eat way too many calories and that we expend a lot less energy than your ancestors, than our ancestors. Um, but, but you, in your book, you argue that, that if you analyze, um, the science, this, this, this doesn't seem to be the case. Can, can you talk about that? Yeah, there's this, uh, one of the, the greatest puzzles in public health is the the problem of obesity. And the old view of looking at obesity was that this is simply a problem of calories. It was a problem of input and output. If you have too much input and not enough output, then there'll be an excess of calories, and that those excess calories will be translated into uh, uh, excessive fat tissue. And this was this was believed to be the problem behind obesity. But um, uh, it never made sense in terms of practical measures. It was never possible, uh, it has never been possible for, to, for um, doctors to advise patients to simply uh, decrease their food intake and increase their physical activity levels. People end up uh, gaining weight in the long run. And uh, one of the problems is that um, when you tinker around with the body like this, um, you actually, uh, the body responds to the, to the decrease in calories by reducing metabolism. So it looks like we have this, our bodies have this innate uh, desire to maintain a uh, constant weight. It, and our bodies don't like to lose weight. And it also turns out that when people lose a lot of weight, they tend to die sooner. Um, so this is kind of worrisome because doctors have been advising us to lose weight for uh, a long time. And uh, it looks like it's neither feasible uh, nor 
uh, no practical for uh, for health. It's actually dangerous to do. And then um, there's other evidence too that, to suggest that uh, today we're we're eating more or less the same amount of calories that our ancestors get, and we're doing more or less the same amount of physical activity levels as our ancestors uh, did when we adjust for metabolism. And uh, yet we have this problem of obesity that our ancestors never faced. So this is a paradox. Of, um, and this is the old line of research was kind of frustrating in terms of its results. But now the emphasis is starting to shift towards hormones. And people are trying to understand what kind of hormones are affecting uh, appetite and, and obesity. And one thing that we do know now is that walking uh, does reduce obesity. And in the book, I give the example of the Amish. The Amish, uh, in some places, places of North America, they don't um, use vehicles. They don't use... Uh, uh, they don't drive around a lot. So when people walk a lot of uh, distance in a day, for example, the, the Amish men in Ontario could walk 18,000 steps a day, which is roughly 18 kilometers uh, in a day, um, or about, about 14 miles, then uh, when they walk so much, they have uh, zero obesity in their communities. And so um, it's not just the calories that are expended. It's something about the kind of activity that we do. And our bodies are really well adapted to walking and to constant, uh, moderate physical activity. And so when we adopt our ancestral lifestyle, then obesity disappears. So I think that's an important lesson. Definitely. But it's, it's funny because you're, you're, you're saying that separately from this idea that, that we, you know, we need to exercise more, right? Like it's not just any exercise. It's this idea that, um, like, you know, that, that, that intense exercise, intensive exercise isn't necessarily going to achieve the same effect as just regular, you know, ideally daily uh, walking. That's right. One of the problems of uh, a vigorous physical exercise, um, let's say a person goes to the gym for an hour uh, a day during the week, then um, after they do that intensive workout, what do they do? They go back home and they, they eat ravenously. And because there's so many calories that are packed, our bodies are so good at extracting calories from food, it's almost impossible to avoid gaining weight back after you go to the gym. And so people end up in this really frustrating cycle where they, uh, they, they work out and then they're so hungry that they, they binge and then they, go, they have to work out again and they binge. And so that has never proven to be a, a consistent, uh, uh, a feasible strategy and um, it's frustrating for a lot of people much. So, um, yeah, the, I, the uh, physical exercise, I think, was a fad. started in the 1960s and starting to reverse now. And people are starting to realize that um, we simply need to find more time to do more moderate physical activity. Uh, we're not designed to do uh, intensive physical activity. And can you also talk about the potential relationship uh, between obesity and perhaps the fact that on average we're, we're more bored than ever? Oh yeah. So, um, at least 20% of our calories are consumed by our brains. Uh, our ancestors use their brains a lot. They had to, uh, think constantly about how to survive. And so they had a couple of challenges. They had the challenge of, uh, finding food to eat. 
during the day. So they had to be really creative, um, have a great memory of all the different plants in a in a region that were edible and those were, that were poisonous. Um, they had to figure out how to hunt um, animals that were uh, really difficult to catch. And um, they also had to worry about social challenges like um, uh, not getting killed by a neighboring tribe. And then on top of that, they had to find a mate and uh, figure out how to court somebody. And once they got a mate, they had to figure out how to um, uh, make sure that their mate wasn't sleeping with somebody else. So there was this, there was this really high-intensity drama that our ancestors lived in. And now when you fast forward to the present, uh, we're, we're living in this... We're no longer in a, in a real soap opera. Now we're just living in this very bland, kind of monotonous life compared to what our ancestors faced. No one... Very few people now in, in days in industrial societies um, face the danger of, of dying uh, from, from making poor food choices or getting killed by a, a neighboring tribe. And so we, we watch TV instead to try to get some of that intensity back into our lives. But really, yeah, we're using our brains a lot less. And so as a consequence, we're, we're consuming less calories in terms of our brains. And so that could be a potential link. Uh, in terms of uh, obesity, the, the excess calories that we now have from lack of using the brain may translate into uh, 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 greater levels of, of body mass. Hey folks, Jordan jumping in real quick here with a request. I just want to remind you of a couple ways that you can uh, help the show. Uh, here's the thing iTunes is still uh, very dominant in, in, in how podcasts are discovered, not just for those who are using iTunes, but it turns out that a lot of other podcasting apps use the iTunes search engine uh, in their apps, which means that I could really use uh, some reviews on iTunes. If, if any of you are using iTunes and can access your account in the iTunes store, if you could go find my podcast, the Ruminant Podcast, and uh, give it a review, uh, it, would, it would really help other people find the, the podcast. So that would be something really cool you could do. And of course, uh, I would love it if, if in general, people could be retweeting each episode tweet or going and sharing posts uh, from the Ruminant page on Facebook, uh, featuring you know, posts featuring different episodes. That's all very, very helpful. Thanks very much. And here's the rest of my conversation with Stephen Lay. So Stephen, I want to move on. And, you know, of of most of the chapters in your book, as I said before, they focus on a food group and how, what, you know, how, what, what, what relationship we had to that food group in different stages of our evolution. Um, and, and so you go through, you have a, a chapter on insects and a chapter on fruit and a chapter on meat. Uh, but, but the only one I really want to talk about in this conversation is your chapter on plants. Um, and that's because you come down particularly hard on plants in your book. And uh, I want to acknowledge right now my bias. I, I grow organic vegetables for my main living. Um, but I, I thought that was that was pretty interesting. And I'm wondering if, if you came down so hard on them, on them because you, you actually think plants are really terrible and, and you try and avoid them as much as possible in your diet? Or, or was this more of a reaction to the reverence uh, that some people accord plants uh, in in thinking about optimum health. Yeah, it's it's the it's the latter. I think the objection that I have is is the uh, the overemphasis, uh, the the um, idolation, uh, the adoration that we that we foster upon plants. Really, they're um, they're not superfoods, and 
I eat a lot of plant foods myself. Most of my diet consists of plant foods, and plant foods are the main constituent of most traditional diets. So from that point of view, um, we need to eat plant foods. We have been eating plant foods for a long time. There's nothing wrong with eating a lot of plant foods in the way that traditional societies ate them. The objection that I have is uh, when we take those plant foods and then um, uh, we look at them as, as being kind of superfoods, and if you think about it, if you, if you um, take a, a bunch of cardboard and you cut it up and then you, you um, empty the contents of your medicine cabinet uh, on that heap of cardboard and then you uh, eat that, that's basically how we view salad uh, today. We're, we're eating a lot of food that's highly undigestible, and um, we, we're hoping for all the nutritional benefits. And of course, yeah, okay, if you eat a lot of medicine, you're going to get some sort of uh, nutritional benefits. But I think it's the wrong way of, of thinking about uh, vegetables and plant foods. Um, they're, they're a necessary component of a healthy diet or a traditional diet. But the research has never really supported um, the, the amazing health benefits of, of plants. It's easy to find in any particular plant. It's easy to locate one, a couple of nutrients that will have a positive effect. But really the question should be the effect of the plant on the overall health. And when you look at the, the big perspective, um, most studies don't show that plants eating a lot of plants increases uh, lifespan. Um, on the other hand, we know that eating less meat uh, does increase uh, lifespan. So uh, eating more plant foods makes more makes sense, but I don't think we should uh, give them too much hype. But that's where I got a little confused because it seems like there's a contradiction. You you started off your your just just a minute ago. You said that that most traditional diets are based on plants, uh, and yet you say that that there's really no established link between you know greater longevity or greater health and and consumption of plants. So what what am I missing? Yeah. So our ancestors viewed plant food, plants with a lot of suspicion. And whenever they had a chance, they would take them out of their diet. Um, they ate plants out of necessity because there was nothing else. They, they ended up, our ancestors ended up hunting out all the big mammals. And so what they ended up with were plants. And then they became really good at detoxifying those plants and processing them so that they minimize the, uh, the harmful effects. Because plants have all sorts of chemical defense, chem clever chemical defenses to deter people from uh, animals from eating them. And so humans figured out that by things, doing things like steaming, grating, chopping, uh, boiling, and so on, you could reduce all of these harmful effects and you could end up with a pretty good meal uh, at the end of the day. So traditional societies figured out all these kind of diets and um, they tasted pretty good. But um, this is a, a, com a compromise that our ancestors faced. And what they preferred to eat was a lot of meat, and which is easier to, to digest and doesn't have this problem of the toxins. So um, eating plant food then makes sense uh, if you're following a traditional diet. Um, and I don't have any objection to eating plants, but they're really not um, a, a superfood. Um, there's no the research has never supported the uh, the effects of plants in promoting uh, uh, long lifespan in a robust way. So let's make a comparison with alcohol. Um, there's much more suspicion about the effects of alcohol, but the research has been much more robust, 
in showing that alcohol promotes long lifespan and reduces heart disease. But that kind of effect has never been uh, as strongly shown with plant foods. And that makes sense because plant foods are really trying to poison us. They're trying to prevent us from, from eating them. So uh, I hope that uh, I'm not the, uh, the contradiction. Yeah, it, 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 it starts to anyway. I, I'm going to dwell on it for one more moment. I just want to clarify. You're, sure. you're, you're, you're acknowledging that, that plants are chock full of phytonutrients and antioxidants and all the rest. You're just pointing out that the, the science hasn't gone further than that to show that all those nutrients are doing us, like unequivocally show us that those nutrients are getting to the right places in our body and doing wonderful things for us. That's right. And some people take those plant foods to an extreme. And so in the case, uh, in the book, I talk about a person who, uh, an Indian scientist who took a bitter gourd, which is this uh, vegetable that's reputed to reduce the, uh, the risk of diabetes. And then this uh, doctor turned into a drink. And he and his wife consumed it for four years. And eventually he died uh, just from uh, consuming too much of this vegetable because it has this toxin um, which makes it bitter. And so when most people eat bitter gourd, they can only eat a small amount of it because it's so bitter. But this doctor, the scientist, uh, thought he believed in the, the health benefits of it. And so he deliberately drank all this bitter juice and then he ended up uh, dying. His wife also uh, suffered severe injuries from drinking this kind of juice. Um, <clears throat> I also give the example in the book of a, of a farmer in France who uh, ate uh, several apples a day. And um, when he eventually suffered a heart attack, and when they autopsied him, uh, they found out that there were all these crystals from the, uh, uh, the apple peel that were inside his lungs. And so it's unclear whether he died from eating too many, too many apples uh, specifically, but for sure there was evidence of the apple, all these apples that he had eaten over his lifetime. And a third example would be uh, Steve Jobs, who went through these periodic um, food fasts. And um, he ended up dying from pancreatic cancer. And it's unclear whether that pancreatic cancer was specifically related to his diet. But an actor who tried to play Steve Jobs um, went on a food diet and ended up in the hospital also with pancreatic issues from eating uh, only fruits for a month. So there's nothing wrong with eating fruits. There's nothing wrong with eating apples um, or, or bitter gourd in moderation. But it's, and we humans are great at taking things to an extreme. And that's when the danger, I think, results. Stephen, as we as we close out the conver- our conversation, I I wanted to I wanted to try and ask you to apply um, your your thoughts and and your main ideas in this book um, to to the modern you know challenge of of trying to figure out the right diet and and so I thought I would ask you to comment on a few different popular uh, food philosophies I suppose. Um, so, so I think, I think I'll start with one that you actually address in your book and I'll just ask you like what, just to give me your, your own take on, on the paleo diet and, and whether it's good or bad or somewhere in between. The paleo diet, um, is effective in, in some ways. It's effective in increasing people's good mood. And this, this was possible because um, uh, the paleo diet ends up, people end up eating a lot of animal foods and they have increased levels of cholesterol and cholesterol 
is a precursor for sex hormones. And so people who end up eating a paleo diet say that they have improved sex drive. Um, and they, they have this overall feeling of well-being. So I think, and you know, if, you, if, that's, if that's a goal, then the paleo diet will, will help achieve that. The possible uh, drawback of the paleo diet is that um, eating a lot of red and processed meat could shorten a person's lifespan. So um, some people are willing to make this willing to make this kind of trade-off. They're, they're willing to shave a couple of years off their life if they're going to end up with a better well-being in the short in the short term. And people who also change to a paleo diet may end up losing weight at least for a couple of years. The problem with the paleo diet is that um, besides the problem of a shortened lifespan, it's also really hard to maintain psychologically because uh, people are cutting out a lot of food that they really enjoy eating. Um, things like bread and, and pasta and potatoes. So um, it's it's difficult psychologically. It could shorten a person's lifespan, but it could also improve a person's uh, mood in, in the short term and help them lose weight in the short term. So um, as, I think as long as people are aware of these consequences, then, yeah, well, everyone's free to make their choices. Okay, so this is the last one, and, and you probably know this one because a lot of people do, but uh, it's, it's Michael Pollan's uh, food philosophy or, or axiom that he's been repeating, which is eat food, not too much, mostly plants. What do you think about, about that axiom? So, uh, so first of all, um, this kind of philosophy is not going to make sense for people who live in the north, let's say the Inuit, or the Maasai, who uh, are, uh, historically have eaten a lot of blood and milk and uh, meat. So I think there are some populations in the world where they're just going to eat uh, less uh, plant foods, and it's going to be fine for them. But uh, I, Michael Pollan himself acknowledges that uh, this kind of his philosophy is, is aimed at, let's say, the mainstream America. And so I think in that case, um, it's simple, it's easy to remember, um, and uh, will end up increasing a person's um, lifespan, most likely. Um, the problem is then that another problem, potential problem is that some people um, have a uh, uh, particular gene that will make them acquire more weight when they eat starches. And so people who have this genetic uh, uh, who have a genetic, uh, who have a gene, they will end up increasing weight when they eat a lot of plants compared to a diet that has a lot of meat. And so, um, for those people, they're not going to be uh, too happy about this kind of philosophy. So I think um, Michael Pollan's philosophy it sort of applies to a, a wide range of people in the United States, but specific people um, who have a genetic tendency to acquire more weight. From eating starches, they may want to uh, stay away actually from from eating plant foods. Uh, so it makes sense for them. So I think we have to fine tune these kind of this kind of advice for particular kinds of people. All right, all right, Stephen. Well, last last question then. Let's go. Let's 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 end with with your food philosophy as applied to me, and 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 that's because I think I represent. Uh, a, a type of person who, who well, I don't have a, a, a very specific ancestry that I know of. And I know, I have to know, I have to assume you've been asked this question a million times now. 
Um, but but what what does someone who doesn't have a, a specific ancestry do? What is what does their food philosophy need to be? What would you suggest to them? Um, so I would have two lines, uh, two easy to remember sentences. The first would be think cuisine, not nutrition. And the second would be to keep moving, uh, keep moving. So, uh, so the, the first line, uh, think cuisine, not nutrition. I think someone like yourself, you can't change your ancestry to a specific region of the world. That means you have a lot of culinary options and there's a lot of, uh, traditional cuisines that are available and, uh, are great to eat. Um, you can have your pick of, uh, Japanese, Thai, uh, Mediterranean, Scandinavian, uh, or Native American, Native Australian, whatever. So there's a lot of uh, different foods to eat around the world that are going to taste great and uh, they're going to maintain your health and they're also going to be great for the environment. So I think you have really a lot of options. But underlying that would be the, uh, the idea of being physically active throughout the day. So if you can do that, then you can really enjoy your food. Well, Stephen Lay, I, I, really, uh, I really enjoyed your book, and I've really enjoyed this conversation. And so I just want to thank you very much for, for joining me on the podcast. <laughs> okay, thanks for chatting with me. Today I learned All right. So that's it, folks. I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, don't forget to go and, and uh, check out a copy of 100 Million Years of Food if you, uh, if you liked what you heard in that interview. It's a pretty fascinating book, a lot more detail than we covered. And, uh, yeah, it's available everywhere. On that note, as I said, if you are a Canadian listener and you would like to uh, enter a draw for a free copy of the book to be sent to you by the Canadian publisher of the book, then either share the post for this episode from the Ruminants Facebook page on your own timeline or retweet this episode's tweet. Uh, go and find that at, at Ruminant Blog uh, on Twitter or send me an email and just tell me uh, some thoughts you have about the show. I'll choose a winner and announce it probably next week. And I'll talk to you next week. Have a good one. Outside of the city's reaches will live off chestnut spring water and peaches. We'll owe nothing to this world of thieves and live life like it was meant to be. place that don't want us a place that is trying to bleed us dry we could be happy with life in the country with salt on our skin and the dirt on our hands i've been doing a lot of some real soul searching and here's my final resolve i don't need a big old house or some fancy car to keep my love going strong so we'll run right out into the wilds and braces we'll keep close quarters with gentle faces and live next door to the birds and the bees and live life like it was meant to be